Hello world, this is Roger Corville, and this is For the Hope, where we read through the Bible conversationally, talk about the truth claims of Christianity, and frankly just explore what it takes to fall more in love with Jesus and the people in his world. You ready? Let's roll. Welcome. So just today, I see this thing go by where somebody publishes something, a theologian, Elizabeth Johnson publishes this article based on a book, on her book, which basically argues that no one had to die for our sins. Now, I haven't read the whole article. You can find it at uscatholic.org, not necessarily a site that I'm going to recommend uh, routinely. But I hold it up as evidence that, that we need to continually be prepared to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. And we've talked before about the necessity of the resurrection. So what's the argument uh, from, you know, nobody had to die for our sins? Well, because everybody's going to go to heaven because we serve a good God who, who really wouldn't punish somebody. And yet all we have to do is look around in the world and how much evidence do we need that there is evil and and the universalist argument is that is that Gandhi goes to heaven and Hitler goes to heaven. That a serial killer goes to heaven because, oh, God is good. And I just don't get that. I just don't entirely get that. You're not reading the same Bible that I'm reading. Um, so talking about evidence we will get to the peter kreft stuff that we've been working through uh, today talking about the hallucination theory because we are called to be prepared to give a defense to give a defense to give a defense and as peter kreft is arguing nothing except christianity best explains the evidence that's it Hey, this week we kick off into the book of James, and I'm going to kind of go slowly through James. James has so much kind of like, you know, James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. James has so many nuggets, that instead of reading through it quickly, that's what I normally do. We're just going to take it a little more slowly because we've got stuff to comment on. Last day in the HCSB, here we go. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So if any of you, notice the presupposition there. It's not if you experience trials, it's when you experience trials. So problem number one with some forms of what people say is that, oh, if you just love Jesus, then we we get a step closer to paradise on earth. Uh, it's not the Bible that I'm reading. Bible I'm reading says it's going to have trials, and part of that's the sin. Okay, Roger, shut up. Here we go. First five. 
Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. The brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation, but the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass, its flower fails, uh, falls off, and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. A man who endures trials is blessed, because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire is con- has conceived, let me hit this again, this is a great point. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, It gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth, so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, humbly receive, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. Humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. Save you from what? You need saving? Hmm. Saving people who need to be saved need a savior. But, therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently with the perf- into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works, This person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress 
and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And that, my friends, is James chapter 1 in the HCSB. One of the things that that has come up uh, well more than once throughout history is that James is saying you got to be a doer and then it's okay and you might rightly ask well so does that mean that we're saved by works when Paul says we're saved by grace and grace alone and I think and I'm probably not the best theologian on the planet to answer this but I think it's really useful to remember that that James's readers um, J- James is writing to a specific group of people right and the Bible is for us but it wasn't written to us I believe that the orthodox understanding of of this particular you know potential or appear apparent conundrum is that that James is calling out the fact that changed lives exhibits itself in changed behavior. When we act in a loving way, our behavior changes, right, toward someone. And in this particular case, he's going, well, let's just use one of those last examples. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Well, there you go. Is James saying, well, if you don't control your tongue, then you go to hell? But you have to, so you got... No. Anyway, that's probably a lame explanation, but I think it's really useful to say, and even ask ourselves, is my behavior changing? And I don't mean beating yourself up and thinking yourself eternally condemned because you blew it last week. But over time, someone maturing into the faith or in in their relationship with Jesus is going to be different. And I've seen it in me. I've seen it in you. And that doesn't mean I'm perfect. And it's quite fortunate that we are not, in fact, saved by our works or... Uh, I would be hosed anyway, right? Hey, as we head toward as we head toward Easter, we've been on this series about the about evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And there is a a great article at Peter Kreft's site, link in the show notes, five possible theories Christianity is one potential explanation of the facts, as are four other major categories of theories, hallucination, myth, conspiracy, and swoon. Talked about swoon yesterday and today. We're going to start into the arguments, the 13 arguments, that refute the hallucination theory. 
As we said at the top of the show, if you thought you saw a dead man walking and talking, wouldn't you think it more likely that you were hallucinating than, than that you were seeing this correctly? Why then not think the same thing about Christ's resurrection? That's one of the arguments, right? Hey, dead people don't come back to life. Hey, you were just seeing things. Argument number one, refutation number one, there were too many witnesses. And honestly, I think this is one of the best arguments. Hallucinations are private, individual, and subjective. Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the disciples minus Thomas, to the disciples including Thomas, to the two disciples at Emmaus, to the fishermen on the shore, to James, meaning his brother or cousin, and even to 500 people at once. 1 Corinthians 15. Even three different witnesses are enough for a kind of psychological trigonometry. Over 500 is about as public as you can wish. And Paul says in this passage, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 15, that most of the 500 are still alive, inviting any reader to check the truth of the story by questioning the eyewitnesses. He could never have done this and gotten away with it, given the power, resources, and number of his enemies, if it were not true. Right? So, even just in 1 Corinthians 15, he calls out, Paul calls out, you know, various witnesses. And he's like, and the implication is, go talk to them. Which means that, of course, if you don't believe that, then that comes down to a reliability of the of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, as a historical document, doesn't even have to be, it doesn't even have to be a, a divinely inspired document to ask the question, is this a historically reliable document? And that is its own separate answer, but it's a great question to ask because there's a good answer for that. <laughs> it actually is a, a wonderfully reliable document. Refutation number two, the witnesses were qualified. They were simple, honest, moral people who had firsthand knowledge of the facts. Well, there you go. How reliable are your witnesses? Well, they're honest, moral people, and they were eyewitnesses. Refutation number three of the hallucination theory, the 500 saw Christ together at the same time and place. This is even more remarkable than 500 private, quote-unquote, hallucinations at different times and places of the same Jesus. 500 separate Elvis sightings may be dismissed, but if 500 simple fishermen in Maine saw, touched, and talked with him at once in the same town, that would be a different matter. Parentheses. The only other dead person we know of who is reported to have appeared to hundreds of qualified and skeptical eyewitnesses at once is Mary, the mother of Jesus, at Fatima, uh, to 70,000 people. And that was not a claim of physical resurrection, but of a vision. Uh, pause. Bear in mind, I think Peter Kreft is a Catholic. So that's why that would come up. Refutation number four, but the point of that one, right? 500 people all saw them together, right? Are there any such things as mass hallucinations? Um, no. Refutation number four, hallucinations usually last a few seconds or minutes, rarely hours. This one hung around for 40 days. Hmm. Refutation number five, hallucinations usually happen only once except to the insane. This one returned many times, 
to ordinary people. Hallucination number six. And he's given there's scripture references here that support all of these. Hallucination, hallucinations come from within, from what we already know, at least unconsciously. This one said and did surprising and unexpected things, like a real person and unlike a dream. Refutation number seven. Not only did the disciples not expect this, they didn't even believe it at first. Neither Peter, nor the women, nor Thomas, nor the eleven. They thought he was a ghost. He had something to eat to prove that he was not. Luke chapter 24. Uh, Refutation number eight. Hallucinations do not eat. The resurrected Christ did on at least two occasions. Luke 24, John 21. Refutation number nine, the disciples touched him. Matthew 28, Luke 24, John 20. Refutation number 10, they also spoke with him and he spoke back. Figments of your imagination do not hold profound extended conversations with you unless you have the kind of mental disorder that isolates you. But this hallucination, quote unquote, conversed with at least 11 people at once for 40 days. Acts chapter 1. Refutation of the hallucination theory number 11. The apostles could not have believed in the quote-unquote hallucination if Jesus' corpse had still been in the tomb. This is a very simple and telling point. For if it was a hallucination, where was the corpse? They would have checked for it, and if it was there, they could not have believed Refutation number 12, if the apostles had hallucinated and then spread their hallucinogenic story, the Jews would have stopped it by producing the body, unless the disciples had stolen it, in which case we are back with the conspiracy theory and all its difficulties. And finally, refutation number 13, this one's just a smidge longer, but I trust you will hang in there with me because you can start to see how how simple logic, right? We don't need a PhD in resurrection to be able to respond to somebody going, oh, they were just seeing stuff. (laughs) Don't let people get by with making fallacious arguments. Refutation number 13. A hallucination would would explain only would explain only the post-resurrection appearances. It would not explain the empty tomb, the rolled away stone, or the inability to produce the corpse. Remember, we're looking at saying, what's the best explanation of the facts? Uh, ooh, this, uh, the hallucination doesn't explain these other issues. No theory can explain all these data except a real resurrection. C.S. Lewis says, and this is him quoting C.S. Lewis from chapter 16 of C.S. Lewis's book called Miracles. Any theory of hallucination breaks down on the fact, and if it is an invention rather than fact, it is the oddest invention that ever entered the mind of man. It breaks down on the fact that on three separate occasions, this hallucination was not immediately recognized as Jesus. Uh, Luke 24 and John 20 and 21. 
even granting that God sent a holy hallucination to teach truths already widely held, already widely believed without it, and far more easily taught by other methods, and certain to be completely obscured by this, might we not at least hope that, that he would get the face of the hallucination right? Is he who made all faces such a bungler that he cannot even work up a recognizable likeness of the man who was himself? End of quoting C.S. Lewis. There you go. If this is the God who created the universe, <laughs> uh, don't you think he could, he could get, he could make the hallucination recognizable? When, as Lewis points out, three other people, you know, three different, three separate times, they didn't recognize him to begin with. Some of these arguments, this is Peter Kreft continuing, some of these arguments are as old as the church fathers. Most go back to the 18th century, especially William Paley. How do unbelievers try to answer them? Today, few even try to meet these arguments, although occasionally someone tries to refurbish one of the three theories of swoon, conspiracy, or hallucination. For instance, Schoenfield's conspiratorial The Passover Plot book. But the counterattack today most often takes one of two following forms. So, number one, some dismiss the resurrection simply because it is miraculous, thus throwing the whole issue back to whether miracles are possible. They argue, as Hume did, uh, David Hume, 17th century Scottish philosopher, atheist, if I got that right, they argue, as Hume did, that any other explanation is always more probable than a miracle. For refutation of these articles, see our chapter on miracles, chapter 5. The other form, number two, the other form of counterattack, by far the most popular, is to try to escape the traditional dilemma of quote-unquote deceivers or conspirators or deceived, meaning the hallucinators, by interpreting the Gospels as myth. Neither literally true nor literally false, but spiritually or symbolically true. This is the standard line of liberal theology departments in colleges, universities, and seminaries throughout the Western world today. That, my friends, gets us to refutation of the myth theory, and we will knock that down tomorrow. I love you. You see how we just... Just being prepared to give a defense. It, we don't have to be rocket scientists. We just give an answer. We just think. And uh, hopefully we're helping you do that. Amen? Amen. <laughs>